Hello, Bethel fandom. Yeah, it's been fucking forever. I mean, I guess relatively. It's... I usually have long gaps between episodes, but this has been quite something. I'm guessing some of you can make a decent guess as to why. Yeah, my sense is that we're all having a rough time right now. I, I don't really know anybody who's okay, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not. Um, the, the last two weeks especially have just been... Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've pretty much felt consumed by the current political situation. It's been very, very hard for me to focus on anything else. I've been trying to do writing. I've been doing a lot more original writing than I have been doing fic writing, I think, which in some ways is good because I need to get back to work on my actual writing career, but it's also been frustrating because fic is easier for me. Um, it's still very much my happy place, so it feels like at the time when I need it most, I'm having a really hard time getting to it. And that's frustrating and it's not helping my state of mind. And getting to this has been hard too. Uh, those of you who follow me on Tumblr probably have noticed that I have sort of disappeared. That's not unintentional on my part. I announced that I was going to take a break and I have been. Uh, I've been much, much more active on Twitter. I didn't want to be active in either place, but, you know, stuff kind of felt like I couldn't completely stay away, and and for some reason I appear to be unable to focus on more than, really more than one social media platform at once. I, I have no idea why, but it's usually for me, it's either Twitter or Tumblr, but not really both. So for me it's been mostly Twitter, but I will come back. I just don't know when that's going to be. Uh, it might not be until the show starts up again. It might not even be until after that, but I... I I do intend to come back and do live blogging and stuff again, so probably you'll see me in another week or so. We'll see. But it's been also hard getting to a place where I feel like I can do this, but I am doing it again. Uh, I, I will be foregoing what I normally do in our reading series. Oh, by the way, welcome to episode four of our reading series. I didn't even introduce myself. See, it's how fucking out of it I am right now. Um, but if you don't know who I am, really, by now, I mean, I'm Sunny, and I'm Dynamic Symmetry on Tumblr, and also on Twitter if you want to hunt me down there and see my political screaming. And this is the series where we do, in sequence, episodes of uh, Vampire Cats Burn and of My Safe Up Here With You. And it's kind of fun to do Safe Up Here With You right now. Uh, I just finished recording the chapter of that because it's really depressing and right now it's super depressing. God damn it, people across the street. Anyway, uh, yeah, this chapter of Burn is long enough that I'm foregoing the one shot at the end that I normally do. Uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So it's going to be just safe up here with you and Burn this time. But next time I do this, I do intend to go back to reading the one-shot in addition to the two chapters. So let me actually get to that now. Because this is so hard for me to do right now, I've decided to make an extra effort to do it. So I'm going, and I've said this before and I didn't follow through, but I really mean it this time, I'm going to be trying to establish an actual schedule for recording and I'm going to be doing my goddamnedest to go back to doing this twice a month. Uh, I've made that commitment before and it didn't go well, but I'm really making it again because, again, like, I 
think we need this right now more than we did even before because now we have something to escape from and too much escapism bad clearly but right now I think escapism is sort of a crucial part of self-care at least for some of us and I feel like it is for me too so waiting until I naturally feel like doing this I, I, I think is sort of waiting like waiting until you're inspired to write which essentially means if you do that you won't write because inspiration is not reliable so yeah I'm gonna be trying to actually make myself do this more uh, we'll see how that goes and in the interest of doing that, I'm actually going to be trying to build sort of an ongoing backlog list of one-shots to read in addition to these two chapters and also for the regular episodes of the podcast that are not in the reading series. I'm going to be doing hunting of my own for that, but this is a time, again, where I really need your recs. So please, 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 if you have any recommendations for good one-shots that you think would fit well with this, please send them my way. Uh, send them to me via Messenger. On Tumblr, send them to me in my inbox. Email me at sunnyds at gmail.com. I'm fine with you contact me any of those ways. I mean, at me on Twitter if you need to. Really fucking anything. But please, please give me Rex. I depend on them so much. I really need your guys' help with this because I do it all by myself and that's a lot of work. So, yeah. A couple of other announcements before we get into it. The... 2016 Moonshine Awards from UltimateBethelFickList.com are going on right now. Nominees are going to be announced on the 20th for all of the different categories. Voting is going to open on the 21st, and it's going to run until February 8th. And then winners will be announced on February 10th. Please get your votes in for that. It was a wonderful success last year, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, where it goes this year. Uh, if you want to vote, and you should, and I require it, go to ultimatebethelficklist.com and you will see 2016 Moonshine Awards, and you will click on that. And you will be able to look at the different categories and cast your vote. Uh, along those lines, and I really think we need this, and thanks so much to Emily's Norman for setting this up, the Bethel Appreciation Week from February 26th to March 4th, which incidentally is my birthday, Hey, I'll be 33. That was the age Jesus was when he died. Yeah, uh, this is the state of my mind right now. Uh, the announcement reads as follows. Hey, everyone, it's been a long time since we've done a general Bethel appreciation, and I felt like it was a long time coming. God, that is so true. Let's celebrate our favorite chip with gifts, art, fic, meta, pick spam, or whatever you want to contribute. The idea is just to have a whole week of appreciating the ship. With that in mind, each day we'll have a prompt. I've made two prompt lists because I don't want to stifle creativity for fic writers, but anyone participating can use the second list of prompts as an addition if you'd like. Mark your calendars for February 26th to March 4th. Beginning on Sunday, February 26th, you may start posting your contributions and tag them with Bethel Week 17 so we can all find everything in one place. So yeah, go to Emily's Norman and check that out. And there are two lists of absolutely wonderful prompts. I'm going to be trying to take part in this, although we'll see how much I'm able to do so. Uh, but yeah, please get involved in this because, again, we really need this right now like we never have before. And finally, on my end, I have added some rewards to my Patreon. If you want to help keep this podcast going, if you want to also support things like the fic books that I make, by the way, Howl is now available, Howl Volume 1, and also my fic writing and just also the work I do in general, 
you should go to my Patreon, which is linked on the top of my Tumblr, dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. You can see the list of rewards that I've set up. They are not as extensive as I would like, but I'm going to be trying to add to them as time goes on. And I have a list of thank yous to read of people who have already contributed. Uh, I want to issue a special shout out to C.L. McCollum, Elise Erickson, Ashley DeGroote, Rebecca Aguilera, Ambrosia Smith, and Aisha Bryant for contributing on my Patreon. Uh, if you want to contribute at a dollar up, you get your name in my books and also here on the podcast, obviously. Uh, it means a lot to me. Obviously, it's not required, but it is a way to support me and the podcast materially uh, in a way that, among other things, really helps offset costs because I do pay out of pocket for a number of things related to this stuff. And if you can't contribute or you just don't feel comfortable doing so, people have lots of different reasons for not doing so, and money is tight right now. And, and you know, frankly, there's a lot of places that need your money that probably deserve it more, like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and everything. Uh, please donate to the ACLU. Oh my God, we need them so bad right now. And they're real American heroes. Like seriously, everybody at Dulles and JFK and LAX is Captain America right now. Uh, please just spread the word. Just reblog stuff. Uh, we're on iTunes. If you go on iTunes and rate and review, that's hugely helpful also. And just word of mouth is incredibly helpful for this and I hugely appreciate it. So yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and get to the fic. Um, we're gonna start with Burn, and we're gonna finish up with Safe Up Here With You. Incredibly cheerful way to end. But you know, I, I think, honestly, I think kind of downer stuff has its place right now too, because, and this is one of the things that a lot of people did say uh, in some ways about Safe Up Here With You, and also about Everything Where It Belongs, which is kind of the sister fic to that. Uh, it's cathartic sort of really downer fiction can be kind of cathartic. It's not the only thing that helps when people are feeling like it seems like people are right now, but it's helpful. So yeah, I don't think this is entirely a bad thing. Anyway, here we go. Hope you enjoy. Burn by the Vampire Cat Chapter 4. The Lion's Den. Part 1. Glenn! Wake up, Glenn! Wake up! It's Maggie's voice, somewhere in the fog of his mind, grabbing him, pulling him out of his dreams. Dreams of happier times. Dreams of the farm, the prison. Not dreams of this cold and smelly boxcar where he's wedged on the corrugated floor between Maggie and Tara. Groaning, he rolls over, causing Tara to shift a little, but not wake. What? he asks, before he's even ready for the answer. It's too early, too cold, and too shitty in this nightmare to wake up. He's almost angry. Feels like Maggie cheated him or something. Sleep longer, less time to worry about what the shitheads outside are doing, less time to hear the muffled cries and flames of that barbecue roaring over the Georgia winter, less time to smell that seared meat. The smell that nauseates him, even as it makes his dry mouth water. Glenn? Her whisper is desperate, and he opens his eyes, blinking in the half-light, shivering involuntarily against a gust of cold air that seeps in through the rusted metal. They don't have blankets. They were never given any. Livestock don't need blankets. What? he asks again, more ready this time, but not really ready enough. 
He's still feeling a little pissed and hopes she hasn't woken anyone else in this godforsaken pit. Let some of them escape to oblivion, at least. Until the final oblivion, of course. None of them want to escape to that. Her eyes are big, and she's dirty. Really, really dirty. Livestock don't need baths, either, her proper ablution blocks. Livestock live in their own filth. They shit where they eat. They don't need sunlight and clean beds, because once you fatten them up, they're off to the slaughter. Well, unless you plan on breeding them, but even so, they still don't need anything more than some murky water. Water that's full of leaves and dirt and insects and a few handfuls of feed. Powdered milk and dried corn. Occasionally some dirty vegetable peels. Yeah, it's not food. It's feed. Feed that's making Maggie really sick, so sick she barely eats. Fact is, it's making them all sick, but she seems to be taking it the worst. And even now, in the bad light, he can see her skin is clammy, gray, a horrible pasty sheen of sweat on her despite the chill of the early morning. Even so, he thinks she's beautiful. Always has. Always will, and he can't stay mad at her for waking him up. He's ashamed by his irritation. This could be their last day together, when anything could happen, and they could be torn apart again on a whim. He takes her hand, squeezes it. She squeezes back. A small, relieved smile even plays on her lips for a second, before her eyes turn hard again, and she glances up from their linked fingers to his face. Glenn, she tells him, her voice a low, urgent whisper. We have to get out of here. Someone coming? he asks, eyes darting over to where Rick is sitting at the opposite end of the car, Carl's head in his lap. Rick never seems to sleep, and he isn't now. He's watching, planning, waiting. They're all waiting, even though they're not really sure for what yet. Maggie looks confused for a second, really confused, and it throws him off because it's a straightforward question and he's not sure why it wouldn't have a straight answer. Maggie, is someone coming? He says again, more insistent. No, no, she says, but she sounds uncertain. So what's going on? He asks. She's freaking him out, and he doesn't like it. She's not prone to this. She always has words. She always has answers. She doesn't speak in riddles. It's what he loves about her. Now she's direct, to the point. Straightforward. I'll have sex with you. Jesus, Glenn, not now, he thinks, squeezing her hand hard. Maggie? He tries again. She shakes her head, and it's like she's trying to get the cobwebs out of her brain. Glenn, you don't understand. We have to get out of here. And no, Maggie, he touches her arm gently. We're working on it. You know the plan. We just need time. She bites her lip, looking over at Rick and Carl, across at Michonne and Rosita, Abraham. Eugene. It has to be now, she says, and he frowns. This really isn't like Maggie. Not like her to freak out, not like her to have a meltdown, especially not now. Now, when they've been here for as long as they have. When they've had time to process, adjust even to what is going on. It doesn't make sense that now, on this freezing morning no different from all the ones before, she'd suddenly lose it, suddenly be hysterical when she's kept calm for so long. He touches her cheek gently. It's an affectionate gesture, but it's also to test the heat on her skin. It's okay, Maggie, he tells her, even though it's not. Even though her skin is hot and wet, and yet also feels like paper. Glenn, you don't understand, she says again, and he starts to think her fever is worse than he thought, starts to wonder if she knows what she's saying or doing. Okay, Maggie, explain it to me. She does. She really does, and he wants her to stop talking and carry on at the same time. 
even as the shock seeps in and the color drains from his face so that his gray skin matches hers. If he felt cheated before, cheated out of a few snatches of sleep, he doesn't have the words to describe how he feels now. Cheated does not even begin to cover it. This is nothing compared to what he felt when Maggie woke him too early. Nothing. He feels like something has been taken from him, something he'll never get back and never experience again. Tears prickle in his eyes as he fights the urge to scream, to rage. It's a tough fight, this one against himself. Harsh, where winning means losing, and vice versa. He's not sure he'll ever know what side of him won. Doesn't care to. Regardless, he forces himself to breathe deeply, to breathe in the disgusting scent of the effluvia in this car, to just let the thick air in and out of his lungs while he pushes away the hysteria and wrestles his way back to reality, whatever reality this may be. Closing his eyes, he kisses Maggie's fingers, also hot and clammy, wrapped around his own. Okay, he tells her. Okay. He stands, helping her up, extracting themselves from this tangle of sleeping, snoring bodies without disturbing anyone, without pulling anyone else back into this thing they call life. Let them sleep a while. Lord knows, they all need it. Rick looks up as they approach him, hand in hand. His eyes are glassy, a hard ice blue, and he's grizzled, hairy, dirty, more bear than man. Michonne was right, his face really is losing the war. Glenn wonders how much of his mind is, too. Hey, he says, voice gruff from the morning. Hey, Glenn answers. What's up? He strokes Carl's hair gently, a gesture Glenn suspects he wouldn't dare when Carl is awake. It's fatherly, something from the old world, an inherent kindness and affection that only a parent could really understand. It's one of those things that no matter how old Carl gets, no matter how big, how tough, how hardened he becomes, he'll always be Rick's little boy, always his son that he had dreams of playing baseball with, of taking to games, of teaching to drive. Drive a stick, maybe. Rick strikes him as the kind of dad who'd want his kid to know how to drive a stick. He guesses Carl's going to have to learn soon anyway. Not like there's any law against driving underage anymore. In fact, it's more a necessity now than ever. This is a new world, after all. An ugly one, where you teach your kids to kill walkers before they learn to walk themselves. He thinks of Judith, and then of Beth, and all the people they've lost. And he realizes this is going to be harder than he thought. And, for a second, he wants to back out. He wants to keep their secret, not let anyone else intrude. But he looks at Maggie, and she smiles, and he knows he loves her more than life, like she deserves to be loved, and he won't let her lose anything else ever again the way she lost her father and sister, the way they've lost Daryl and Carol and Tyrese, Karen. Rick, he says, bending down so that their faces are close, his voice hushed. We need to get out of here, and we need to do it now. The street is dark and quiet as he sits in the car outside the doctor's rooms, watching, waiting, listening to the sounds of the night, listening for the brush of hobbling feet, the groan of dead men. But there's nothing. Silence. Silence and the smell of death. Silence except for her voice echoing in his ears. Come home to me, Daryl Dixon. Come home. The seriousness of her words amplified by the hardness, dare he say, coldness, of her eyes. She hadn't wanted him to go. She'd been adamant about that. Adamant. He should stay. Wait for the morning and she'd go with him. 
They're a team, remember? Didn't he know that? Isn't that what they decided? Agreed on? She was right. They had. No denying that. But her coughing had become so bad over the past week, so very, very bad, and all he could think about was the flu and the prison, and how if she got sick they were both screwed. It started out slow. A little chill, she said, just a cough, a blocked nose. She said she was getting better, still claimed she was weeks later when they'd gone through the cold and flu meds they found in the houses. Gone through them all. No more cough syrup, no more Sudafed, no more hot toddies and lemon-flavored drinks that tasted nothing like lemon. He knew it before she did. She wasn't getting better. Even though she said she was fine, it was just a cold, just a chill, and she'd be good soon. Right as rain, she said. Right as rain. Yeah. What his ma said, the night she set herself, and everything else, on fire. Don't worry, Daryl. Don't worry, my boy. Mama's going to be right as rain after she has a lie down. Nothing for my boy to worry about. Tomorrow we'll go for ice cream and play in the park. And then she'd closed herself and her bruises and her friend Jim Beam up in the bedroom. And he never saw her again. Still saw Jim, though. Saw Jim a lot when his old man was taking a belt to him. Saw him a lot when there was no food in the house. Saw him even more when the old geezer sold his ma's opal bracelet that her grandma gave her on her deathbed was a little windfall for Will Dixon, that bracelet. Didn't use the cash to buy anything good, though, or fix anything, pay off his debts. No, he used it to buy Jim. Jim and whores, and a couple of skin magazines that Merle would steal when his old man wasn't looking. He still fucking hates that his old man did that. Still fucking smarts, because his ma loved that fucking bracelet. Told him that one day he was going to find a girl with eyes as blue as those opals, and she was going to love him so hard, and his ma was going to love her too, because Daryl would choose the perfect girl, the best girl. And then he could give her the opal bracelet, because that's where it really belonged. Not with Mama and her leathery arms, arms old before their time, ravaged with cigarette smoke and too much sun, too much gym, and way too much wine. No, she said. It belongs on the wrist of your girl. Your pretty girl who love you like you're the only man in the whole world. Your pretty girl that you'll treat right. Treat good and proper, like a lady. Treat her. He stops. Yeah, he doesn't want to think about that right now. His ma and her ramblings. His ma and her pain. His ma and her bracelet. His ma and Beth. Because then he's really going to go back to crazy town gonna get himself caught up in all the shit from before, and he already burned that the fuck away. No call to let those wraiths rise from the embers anymore. No call to bring anything from the past into this new home. Number seven, with a cerulean flower box that they have now. Besides, what his blue-eyed girl needs are meds. What his blue-eyed girl needs is for him to be making her god-awful citrus drinks and putting a cold compress on her head. To be holding her while she tries to sleep. Yeah, that holding her while she sleeps, in their bed, the bed they now share. He thinks maybe there's a part of him that should feel embarrassed about it, ashamed, maybe, but there ain't, and he guesses that in itself makes him ashamed, but it really doesn't, and he's given up trying to wrestle with it, given up looking for reasons to feel guilty. He tried to do the honorable thing, the decent thing, when they moved their shit into the house a month ago, after carrying her across the threshold, inside, and getting a kiss on the cheek that he hadn't responded to, but felt all the way down to his toes and back, 
He'd taken his stuff to the spare room, dumped it on the bed. His intentions had been good. Righteous, even. Path to hell and all that. Yeah, he knows. Intent ain't magic. Started out okay. Started out decent. He thought she would be shy about discussing sleeping arrangements. He certainly was. Wasn't no good reason in the world to sleep in the same bed. Sure, there were flesh-eating monsters outside, and sure, it was probably safer and warmer now, since it had gotten so, so, so cold. But there wasn't a good reason to actually sleep in the same room, let alone the same bed. Not really, anyway. Not to say that the nights he'd spent snuggling with Beth Green were not the best nights of his life. They were, hands down. Even if he finds it hard to admit. Wasn't another night in his life that even came close. But getting into bed with her, just matter-of-fact and all, that seemed forward. Presumptuous. Indecent. And he was decent, he decided. He was one of those good people Beth kept talking about. She hadn't said anything when he went to the spare room. Just watched him with those big blue eyes while she stripped the bed in her room and changed the covers. And he was grateful. Grateful she didn't press. Grateful she left him be told himself that he wasn't going to sit outside her room anymore, wasn't going to be paranoid and delusional, and that she would still be there in the morning. He'd work it out. He'd be fine. But when he was supposed to go to sleep, once he'd make sure everything was locked up tight for the hundredth time, once he'd checked and rechecked the chain he'd found for the gate, walked the fence, and added another cutlery barrier to the porch outside, and he finally got into bed, he couldn't. He lay there in the dark, tossing and turning. There was no wind, no rain, no shuffle of dead feet outside, even though now they were too far from the street to hear it. Just silence. Silence that made him twitch uncomfortably. Silence that seemed too loud and too tangible to be real. Silence that filled you up and drained you out all at once. There was nothing. Not even the sound of Beth's breathing. He didn't like it. He felt itchy, too alert, prickly. And the urge to get up and sit outside her room, again, paranoid, deluded, frightened out of his fucking mind, was undeniable. And that was when Merle had started up again. What do you want, Darylina? You want to tap that ass? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Come on. Go make old Merle proud. No, he told himself. No, it wasn't like that. Not like that at all. Sure, Beth was beautiful. Fucking heartbreaking. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't like he looked at her and wanted to bang the shit out of her, fucking take her like she was a piece of meat. It wasn't like he got off on the idea of getting it on with a young, pretty girl like her. That ain't it at all. So what is it, brother? You want to hold her? You want to kiss her? You want to make sweet love to her with rose petals and candlelight? What is it? Merle again. Always fucking Merle, always demanding explanations always hanging around like the devil on his shoulder, always uncovering that deep, dark part of himself, using it. But not this time. Not this time, because he had an answer. The only answer. It's Beth. It's always been Beth. He waited for the onslaught, waited for Merle's crowing, his old man's snigger, his ma's quiet sobs. But they didn't come. In fact, quite the opposite. They were silent, Silent as the sounds that filled up the house, the world. Silent as the Lord, as he watched his creation go against the laws of life and death, as set out since the beginning of time. Silent as death. They're all doomed, anyway. 
Funny thing, though. Funniest thing ever in that moment. None of it. None of it seemed so terrifying. So real. He tossed the covers aside, sat on the edge of his bed, and before he had time to talk himself out of it, walked out of the room and down the passage, and ended up in her doorway. Again. Empty-handed, words backing up behind his teeth. So many of them, but not one he dared voice. She was still awake, most of the room in shadows, the smallest halo of light from a flickering candle. He kept his chin down, eyes jumping between her and the floor, waiting for her to say something, anything. He didn't care, even if it was to tell him off, send him back to his bed, out of the house, tell him he should crash at Mr. Dudebro across the path. But she smiled, and even in the half-glow from the candle casting shadows on her skin, he couldn't believe how clearly he saw her, how real and tangible she was to him in that moment. It was a fucking miracle that she was here, something that doesn't even compare to any water-into-wine party tricks. He needs to stop with the mocking, though. He knows she doesn't like it. Wordlessly, she pulled the covers open on his side of the bed. His side. I was wondering how long it would take, she said. Glad it was sooner rather than later. He'd needed a moment to process her words. He hadn't thought that far. Hadn't thought that maybe she'd be okay with it. Maybe she'd invite him in, as casually as asking if he'd like a beer or a snack. Hadn't had anything planned for that scenario. He'd kind of just been leaving the big decisions up to her, trusting her to make the right call and somehow know what it was that he needed. She'd never been wrong before. Come on, she said, snapping him out of his thoughts long enough for him to understand the invitation in her words. It's cold. Get in. So he did. Patted across the floor like a bad dog, wary, frightened, skittish, and shifted down onto the mattress next to her as she tossed the comforter over him. He hadn't reached for her. Not immediately, anyway. Just lay there on his back, pinching the bridge of his nose, eyes closed, while he focused on blocking Merle out. Merle and his dirty words, Merle and his dirty laugh, Merle and his dirty thoughts. And after a few minutes, she touched his elbow gently and asked what was wrong, what he was thinking. He hadn't answered, hadn't wanted to, was content to let the silence stretch like a rubber band to the point of breaking. But when he heard her take a breath in anticipation of continuing to talk, he opened his eyes. She was propped up on one arm, looking at him, like she always did, like she could see right through him to the other side, and was absolutely a hundred percent fine with everything he was showing her. Is this okay, Beth? he'd asked, knowing she got the fullness of his question. He waited for her to launch into a long explanation, knew she had one just waiting in the back of her mouth, in that brain of hers that overthinks almost as much as his does. But she surprised him. He doesn't know why. Happened all the fucking time now. Yes, she said simply, and blew out the candle, snuggling down into the blankets, body turned towards his. He lay there a few minutes longer, waiting for Merle, waiting for his crowing, waiting for him to say something filthy, something to ruin this. But it never came. His head was clear, silent, for the first time in years. It was temporary. He knew it was just a matter of regrouping and rearranging tactics for self-sabotage. Knew it wouldn't last. But he'd figured he'd take it if it meant he could have this. Deal with the fallout later, when he's sharper and brighter, and maybe his shoulder felt a bit better. He turned to face her, rested his hand on her forearm, just above her wrist. Okay, 
She looked at him long and hard, like she did the first night, and even though there was no light, he had seen the fire in her eyes. She kissed him then, chastely, briefly, but it had still made his heart pound, made his cock twitch and his breath catch. She settled back down next to him, watching him, eyes locked on his. He hadn't looked away, not once, until she fell asleep, their hands linked on the pillows. He'd known it back then. He knows it now. To go to Beth Green, you must go with perfect courage. And now, almost a month later, he knows that apparently you need it to leave her, too. Even if it is just for a run to pick up some cough syrup. He sighs, closing his eyes briefly before looking back at this suburban dispensary, doctor's rooms nestled in this street of oversized and overpriced houses. It hadn't been a fight, not exactly, but he guesses his idea of fights is a little different to, you know, normal people. There'd been no screaming, no throwing things, no name-calling, no threats, no violence. But she hadn't been happy about him going alone. Not at all. She didn't like being apart, she said. She was matter-of-fact and all straightforward, to the point, daring him to disagree. Said she did nothing but worry the whole time, because when he drove out the gate, it could be the last time she'd ever see him. And then what? She'd be stuck not knowing what happened to him, maybe never hearing from him again. Besides, it was too late at night, too dark out, and he wouldn't be able to see properly. The weather wasn't great, easy for walkers to sneak up on you, even if you're Daryl fucking Dixon. And he agreed. There was a bad idea going off alone but it couldn't be helped. She'd be coughing up a lung soon, and he was damned if he was going to lose her to the common cold. Not that he thought she was going to die from a chill, hadn't even wanted to entertain the idea of prison flu, though he did, briefly. But it would slow them down if they needed to move. It would give away their position if she coughed and sneezed. And frankly, he didn't like seeing her like this, because even though she said she was fine, she was suffering. Truth was, he also felt a little responsible, because it had taken him an age to fix the shower. Apparently he'd picked up less from Tyrese than he thought he had, and they needed batteries and pipes, and all sorts of shit they couldn't find in any of the homes. So they'd been showering cold for too long, and he's pretty sure that's how she got sick. For the past week, she'd been telling him not to worry. It couldn't be helped, but he did worry, and he could help. So tonight, when she woke herself and him up coughing and sneezing, he climbed out of bed and pulled his jeans and jacket on. Where are you going? she asked. Gonna get you some meds for that, Beth. You can't carry on like this. I'll sleep in the spare room, she offered. Don't mean to disturb you. Ain't that, he said, pulling on his boots. I can't come with you, she sat up against the pillows. He thought that was the end of it. Thought she was just stating a fact. Didn't even bother to reply, really. But she wasn't done. Nowhere near. Because that's when it started. Told him he was risking his life for nothing. That if he just waited for tomorrow, when it was light out and warmer, she'd go with him. He told her no. His eyes had narrowed, and her mouth set in a firm line, which reminded him of how she'd looked at him in those early days after the prison fell. The days that he'd disappeared into himself, and raged silently at her for no other reason than that she was there, and she could be raged at. And it made him feel better to resent her, rather than to resent himself ease the burden. Even if it didn't. Yeah, he ain't so proud of those days. Not at all. Not in the slightest. Treating her like crap. The few barbed words he'd said only to hurt her, stop her, bring her down. And it felt like it had come full circle. Because even though she wasn't being like him, 
even though she was still trying to communicate in the same old Beth way that involved reasoning and openness. This was still new to him because he sure as shit had never seen people communicate like that before. He could see she was pissed. Merle would have said she was on the rag, but that was Merle's answer for every emotion any woman showed unless it was delirious happiness at seeing his dick. But Daryl knew Beth, and that wasn't fair. He figured, like all Merle's other advice on women, it wasn't fair. She was sick, and that made her vulnerable, protective, and a little fearful, quiet, maybe even a bit introspective. She'd been talking about Maggie a lot, about her father, Rick, Carl. And not knowing what else to do, he'd hold her at night, wrap his arm around her belly while she rested against his chest, struggling to breathe, and he'd try and find some dumbass story to tell her, to cheer her up, make her laugh, and then realize he didn't have many. Even the funny ones, like the poison ivy in his ass, had a dark overtone that he didn't want to bring into the bedroom. Their bedroom. This unconsummated haven they'd made. So he'd try some lame jokes. He didn't really know how to tell jokes, though, and they'd always fallen a bit flat, but Beth would laugh anyway, maybe to humor him, maybe just because she's Beth, and there ain't no one sweeter in the whole world. Tonight, before they'd gone to sleep, he told her, A pie walks into a bar, and the bartender says, I'm sorry we don't serve food here. She laughed in a kind of exploding snort that was both hilarious and kind of scary, and then she turned over and kissed his jaw before snuggling into him, head on his chest small shoulders shaking a bit as she coughed. He didn't mind anymore that she could hear his heart pounding throughout his entire body. He was less certain about his arousal pressed against her stomach, but even that didn't make her move. He started to think that there's a part of her that likes this, likes knowing what she does to him, likes him to know what he does to her. It's not pressure, it's confidence. Confidence that he'll eventually come to her, as a man does to a woman. But that was the last thing either of them was thinking of as she followed him down the stairs only a few short minutes ago, listing the reasons for him to stay, to wait. She told him it didn't feel right. That almost stopped him. Almost. Because Beth's instincts were good. Very good, and she didn't say shit like that lightly. But then she'd sneezed again, and he'd waved her off, asking if she was psychic or something. Her jaw hardened, and her eyes got colder then, and even though he hadn't said it, he was sorry. He promised he'd be quick, squeezed her hand gently, but she pulled away and went to sit on the couch with a cup of herbal tea. He'd picked up the keys and then stood in the hall like a dumbass, waiting. Thing was, he didn't go on runs alone often. They'd only been in the house for a month, and there hadn't been much call to leave, and most of the time she'd go with him if they did need something. But when he would go alone, there was a ritual they followed. She'd wrap her arms around him before he left. She'd kiss him sometimes a little too long, before he got all jangly and walked away, squeezing her arm or her hip, or whatever piece of flesh was closest to his hand. He liked that they'd repeat the process when he came back, that she'd wait for him by the window, take the steps two at a time when the car pulled into the drive. Sometimes he'd barely be out of it before her arms were around his neck, cheek pressed to his skin. And he'd hold her like that, hand cupping the back of her head, breathing in the scent of her hair, her skin before telling her to get off and stop being so goddamn mushy. But if she stayed on the steps or in the house when he arrived, he'd sometimes leave whatever shit he'd scavenged in the car and go to her first, give her arm a squeeze, or touch her shoulder. He wasn't as forward as her, his nerves always got the better of him at the last minute, and he wouldn't try and kiss her or hug her, but he liked the ritual. It felt good. 
something as close to normal as they could get in this suck-ass world. But not this time. Hands in his pockets, he'd shifted from side to side for a while, until he'd realized there wasn't going to be a hug or a kiss or anything like that. So he'd picked up the crossbow and headed out. The door was almost closed behind him when he heard her call. He stopped, looked inside. She was looking at him over her mug. Be careful, she whispered. Come home to me, Daryl Dixon. Come home. He hadn't said anything because his throat was all closed up, so he'd nodded, made that noise he knew she'd come to accept as meaning yes, okay, and something else all at the same time. He would be careful. He would come home. And he needs to get on that, because otherwise he's just going to sit around in the car thinking of Beth and his ma and opal bracelets and pies walking into bars. He opens the car door, wincing a little at the gust of sharp cold hair that bites into his skin, chills him. And he really just wants to hightail it back home, forget this crazy mission, forget the meds, forget everything, and spend the night holding her. Come back in the morning, like he said, when it's light, when it's easy, when the horrors in the dark couldn't sneak up on you. But he can't, she needs something, and there's no time like the present. No use sitting here in suburbia, like it really is suburbia, any longer. He stands. There's a walker stuck on the fence, but that poor fuck ain't going anywhere, and another milling by the front door now, which he'll need to take out. That's quick. He does it with his knife right between the eyes. The corpse isn't even on the ground, and he's banging on the window, waiting for groans and moans and hisses that don't come. He's not surprised. He's not far from home, and there haven't been many walkers around the area. He's not really sure why. It could be the cold, because they do tend to be dopier and less energetic when the temperature plummets, although that doesn't really explain why the dispensary would be empty. Either way, he ain't looking for a fight, just some meds and a safe passage back to Beth, where hopefully she ain't still pissed. He knows she isn't, though. He gets it. If the tables were turned and he was coughing up a storm and she was out here alone, he'd also be going out of his head a little. She's tough and all, but still. How very 19th century of you, Mr. Dixon, he hears her voice. And he smirks a little. Ain't that either. Not really, anyway. It's more like he finds it hard to imagine that she could feel the same way about him going out on a run alone as he would feel if it was her. Seems pretty damn strange that anyone, let alone Beth, could feel that way about him. But there's a part of him that knows that somehow, against every cosmic law of the universe or something, she does. And he also knows it ain't just about the fact that he can protect her and provide for her, because she sure as shit proves she can do it for herself. It's something else something more, and it scares him. Scares him more than all the walkers in the world. He pushes the door open, shines the torch into the murky interior. Place is dusty, an overturned desk, a broken chair, and a smashed computer to the one side, an open door and a shredded couch to the other. No doubt this was reception. No doubt someone's already been here. A lot of doubt as to whether he's actually going to find any meds. But someone is smiling down on him as he edges deeper into the house and through the open door, because he finds the dispensary easily, and it's stocked. Not completely stocked, someone's definitely been in here, but there's enough, and whoever went through it first obviously had no interest in cold and flu meds, which is a dumbass move in these times. But their loss, his gain, and all that. 
He wants to be precise in what he takes, but ends up grabbing randomly because he doesn't actually have a clue what any of the prescription drugs do, and doesn't want to waste time reading the labels. So instead, he just grabs at anything that sounds vaguely familiar, trying hard to remember the names of the drugs Herschel had written down for their run to the veterinary college. Christ, that seems like a long time ago. Decades, even, when he thinks about all the shit that has gone down since then. The shack, the funeral home, Joe, and now Beth. Beth, Beth, Beth. Your blue-eyed girl. Yeah, thanks, Ma. She ain't no more his girl than he's her man. And that's to say, none at all. At least that's what he tells himself. He also tells himself that this thing between them is platonic, that it's temporary, that it'd be pretty much the same with anybody. Yeah, he tells himself a lot of things. But right now, the only thing he needs to do is get what he came for and get home before some shit goes down that he's not prepared for. Which is why he can't explain the overwhelming urge he has as he steps back outside into the night, over the walker, to go and investigate the house across the road. They don't need anything. They have food, meds, candles. They might need a few batteries in the future, but they don't need them now. And a run like that is easier with two people anyway. In short, there's as much reason for him to go into the house as there is for him and Beth to sleep in the same bed. So yeah, none. None whatsoever. It's cold. It's dark. It's a world filled with the walking dead who want to eat you up. It's a bad idea, and he knows it. Even so, there's something that draws him to the house. It's big, expansive, a double story with white walls and a picket fence, similar to the house he found Beth in. It's also unsecured, and there's far too many nooks and crannies that could hide walkers or people, or whatever other horrors the world has left to throw at him. He shakes his head, goes to the car. Go home, Daryl, his ma says. Go home to your blue-eyed girl and make things right. Yeah, his ma's got this one. He fumbles for the keys in his pocket, but even as he does, his eyes are drawn back to the house. He thinks of the opal bracelet. These people look like they could have been rich. Wonders if there's something similar inside. Wonders if he can find it. Find it for Beth. She lost all her bracelets. Still hasn't told him how. Wonders if he can make up for some of his old man's past mistakes. Wonders if this is the way. It ain't. He knows that. There are more important things he needs to worry about now. He also knows he's being dumb. This is a bad idea. And yet somehow he's already on the porch, banging the crossbow against the window, waiting and listening and knowing that nothing's going to throw itself up against the glass. The whole area is too cleared out. Someone came through here before. Someone's been through these houses, at least this block. The only walkers seem to be stragglers who've wandered in from elsewhere, lost to the herd. A part of him wants to laugh at that. How much of a fucking loser must you be to not only be a walker, but be rejected by other walkers? Yeah, he ain't being logical again. Attributing human emotions to the dead. He knows the word for it. Anthropomorphizing. Merle always liked it. Used to think it made him seem intellectual. Would tell Daryl to stop anthropomorphizing Layla, the dog Daryl would feed on the sly. Layla. He gave her that name. He misses that mutt sometimes, with her wary eyes and drooping tail, her gummy grin and mangy skin. He knew she wasn't human, but she was the only friend he had at times. Well, until one day, she just didn't arrive at dinner time, and he never saw her again. That smarts, too. More than the bracelet. 
not more than his ma, though. He thinks there is a distinct possibility he has abandonment issues, and that he wants to laugh out loud at the thought. But he doesn't. Instead, he bangs on the window again, just to be sure, and then pushes on the door. The lock is busted, and it falls to the ground with a crash as he steps inside. The house is big, cavernous even. No doubt some hotshot lawyer or politician lived here. Someone with money probably played golf at that club him and Beth lost themselves in a million years ago. If that was hell, then this is purgatory. For him, at least. Him with his dumpster chairs and bikini ashtrays. He's not sure how Beth would feel about it. Beth with her solid family. Beth with her nice farmhouse and her Lego blocks, her piano, and her string of pretty bracelets. Would she have been comfortable here in the old world? Could she have sat in the lounge and drunk iced tea, made small talk with the inhabitants, the wraiths that they are now? He's not sure, but guesses that it doesn't matter. Not anymore, not in any real sense. What they have is now, because it's all they'll ever have. All they've had in a long time. And that's okay, at least he thinks it is, even if he knows that something like this wouldn't have been possible before. It doesn't matter. Problem is, though, despite these little pep talks he gives himself, and despite the fact that he needs to do it less often than he used to, in the back of his head he can hear Merle. And all he's saying is how it does matter, how it's the only thing that ever matters. The smell hits him as he edges across an expansive Turkish carpet and into the lounge. Sickly sweet, rich, and somehow sour and foul. The odor of putrefaction. Decay. It's cloying, sticky, and he swears he can almost touch it in the too thick air. It's funny. He thought he was used to it by now. Thought it had invaded his clothes and skin and hair. Thought it was just part of him. Maybe even part of Beth, too. So familiar that neither one of them could actually smell it any longer. But apparently, even in this death trap of a world, he still knows what clean smells like. And it isn't this. There's definitely a body here. Maybe a walker in one of the top rooms that couldn't get down the stairs. Maybe just a corpse. But definitely something. Covering his nose with his rag, he glances around the room. Not much to see. The place is a little trashed, but not too badly. His torch picks up a few overturned chairs, a navy couch, no chintz, thank God, some marks on the walls he can't quite identify, and a few broken picture frames in the corner. A smashed mirror hangs above a fireplace full of tins and containers, and other rubbish. The smell, though. The smell gets worse because he can now detect the acrid whiff of dried piss, and something else beneath it he doesn't want to think about. Go home, Daryl, his ma says. Go home to Beth. She's waiting. He bangs his torch on his hand to get it to shine a little brighter. It isn't a great torch. Never has been. He found it at a truck stop with Joe, but Len had already claimed all the good ones, so he was left with this dim bulb that only really served to make the shadows darker and gloomier. He makes for the stairs. Sit on the stairs, Beth. Sit on the stairs and old Len will show you what he's got. You like that, Bowman? You like it? He shakes his head. He doesn't know why he's thinking about this now. Beth with her ripped golf shirt being paraded around like a slave at a meat market. Beth is fine. Len is dead, and he hadn't done anything to her. Her bruises are gone. That handprint that he hated more than anything in the world, too. His shoulder was even healed. So it makes no sense that all he can think of now is what would have happened. How it could have gone down. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, his old man says. 
It don't mean nothing now. But it does, says Merle. Go home, Daryl. Go home now. That's his ma. She seems to be the only one talking since. The first step creaks as he stands on it, and he waits a bit, but the house is silent. He takes another step. Better now. Quieter. His boots barely even scuff the wood. There's a smashed picture halfway up, the family photograph. Dad has a shock of salt and pepper hair, and Mom looks like she just stepped out the pages of Vogue. Beautiful, with chestnut brown hair and big green eyes. There's three kids, two girls and a teenage boy. He's all teeth and stick-out ears, while the girls are blonde, pretty, dressed in flouncy red dresses with bows on the shoulders. The cracks in the glass obscure their smiles, and he wonders how the picture fell off the wall, if it was just normal attrition over time or if something else broke it. He decides it was intentional, because the picture is lying face up. Smash that picture, Beth. It's Beth, right? Bowman, your bitch's name is Beth, ain't it? I just want to be sure. Need to be polite and all, yeah? Smash this picture, Beth. Smash it good. Fuck, he shakes his head. Stop it, Daryl. Stop it. The smell is getting worse as he climbs. Deeper, thicker, fuller. He fights the urge to gag. It's something he hasn't had to do in ages. You get desensitized to it after a while. Learn to live with it. But not now. Now his Arabiana dinner that Beth threw together from some tinned tomatoes and whole wheat pasta is about to make a second appearance, and he stops to let the feeling pass, let his roiling stomach settle, biting back the sour hint of vomit in the back of his throat. The last thing this place needs is his puke to add to the odor. Taking deep breaths doesn't help, though. Makes it worse. So he continues up, one hand on the banister for support. Slow steps, deliberate. Doesn't want to fall doesn't want to lose his balance because his stomach is acting like a whiny bitch. The top step creaks, much like the bottom one, and he stops again. Quiet, waiting. Silence. Silence and stink. Silence and rot. Silence and death. He moves into the passage, turning left. Another Turkish rug that softens under his feet. The dim light from the torch picks up some more marks on the walls, and he moves closer to investigate, stepping over broken glass where more pictures lie smashed. Break that picture, Beth. Break it, baby. Break it like I'm gonna break you. Glass crunches under his boot, and that's when he hears it. So soft, so low, so faint, he doubts himself, his instincts. Wonders if he's not hearing things. But there it is again. The quietest hiss, the most muffled groan. He freezes, skin prickling, and not in the good way that he feels when he's with Beth. In that bad way, that way that tells you shit is about to go down. That ancient evolutionary gift that only now in this piece-of-shit world is rearing its head again. A bandage on a gunshot wound, for all the good it does now. Skills long forgotten by our caveman ancestors now coming home to roost. Now that we're old and out of practice and stupid... Now that we've given them up in favor of the cell phones and computers and social media that we trust to do the thinking for us. Now when we need it most, but don't have the time to learn it all over again. The smell is terrible, and he's sure there's a walker somewhere, lying in wait, desperate to sink its teeth into him, to turn him. He runs his light along the walls, shining it into the hollow doorways. But there's nothing. Just a gurgle. Just a moan. Better get it, says Merle. Go home, Daryl, says his ma. This place is not for you. His old man is quiet. 
The door at the end of the passage is closed, and he knows it's in there, behind that door, waiting for him. He tells himself it's just a geek, a biter. He's killed hundreds already. This is going to be quick, easy. Shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, he tells himself a lot of things. He heads to the door, presses his ear to it. It's quiet again. Dead quiet. But the smell... The smell is overpowering. It's not just decay. The odor of piss and shit is strong here, too. Stronger than downstairs. Stronger than the stink of the poison and the insidious reek of the moonshine shack. And suddenly all he wants to do is bury his nose in Beth's hair. Her hair that smells of citrus and sunshine. Hair that smells of life and light, even on the cloudiest day. His ma was right. He needs to go home to her. Needs to hold her and touch her and feel the warmth of her skin on his. Feel the smoothness of her, the silk of her pressed against him. Her fluttery kisses against his chin, his cheeks. He'll go. He'll give her meds and rub her back. He'll tell her everything, all the shit that goes on in his head. Tell her how he feels about her. Something better than, hmm, you know. Go home, Daryl, says his ma. Go home, Daryl, says Merle. Go home, Daryl says his old man. He pushes the door open, hard, quick, stepping back at the same time, crossbow aimed at the gloom, aimed at the ghosts, aimed at the past. The smell is horrific. Death and piss and shit and vomit. The smell of unwashed bodies. The guttural moans of walkers, strangled and thick and hungry. For a second it's all too much and his courage fails him. He backs into the passage wall against a skewed tapestry that's somehow still hanging somehow still there. Take her upstairs, fuck her on the carpet. What do you think, Bowman? You want to watch? Want to watch her scream for me? He stumbles a little, grabbing at the fringes of the tapestry and pulls it to the ground, a puddle of warp and weft at his feet as he writes himself. He should go. He needs to go. His ma was right. This place ain't for him. It ain't for Beth. It ain't got anything he needs and is full of all the shit he doesn't. Go, Daryl. Go now, says his ma. Come home to me, Daryl Dixon, says Beth. Come home. And there's part of him that's irrationally happy that her voice has joined the chorus. He'll listen. Listen to her. Listen to his blue-eyed girl because she's the only thing that makes sense anymore. The only thing keeping him sane. He's about to turn, make his way back down the stairs before whatever hell is behind that door comes to find him. This was a stupid idea. It wasn't even an idea, really. It was a fucking whim. A teenage boy in a man's body doing shit for the sake of doing it. Stupid, reckless, careless. What if you don't come home? Then what? Beth again. Leave now! His ma is shrieking. And then he hears it, scampering a feet across a wooden floor. It's not shuffling, not hobbling. It's not the walk of the dead. The lurching of the living ghosts that now call this world their home. It's nothing like that. Nothing. It's too purposeful, too sure, too direct. There's something else in there. Something alive and kicking. Something human. He turns back, crossbow ready, finger on the trigger. He forces himself to control his breathing, forces through the sting of a smell, forces through the prickles under his skin that make him hot and cold at the same time. Hot and cold in that same way that's bad and ugly and nothing like Beth. He chokes back the nausea, adjusts his stance, peers into the darkness. But it's quiet again. 
quiet except for the angry rasping in the breeze through the trees outside. He waits. He waits. He waits. And then he walks into the bedroom. The bedroom that's the same size as the entire Dixon trailer. Into the smell. Into the death. Into the unknown. Into the ninth circle. Into hell. Hell complete with a mission-style king-size bed. Wooden. Over the top. Ostentatious. The sheets are purple. Royal purple, for fuck's sake, or at least they once were. Now they're stained. Stained with piss and shit and blood and vomit. Stained with decay and the rotting flesh of the two walkers tied together on the sheets, then ropes looped around the headboard and under the mattress. Stained with death and ruin. It takes him a second, but he realizes that it's the boy from the photograph, all grown up now into a man and all death down into a walker. And the sister, too. The younger one, he thinks. Maybe a little younger than Beth, but who can tell when your skin is falling from your bones, when your life has run out of your body, and all that's left is a flesh bag that's gone against the laws of nature. Poor fucks, he thinks to himself. Poor stupid fucks who lie here until they can pull their rotted flesh out of their bones and wander through this shithole of a house looking for live bait to consume. Live bait, which is hiding somewhere in this room. Live bait that's scampering around in the darkness and nesting here for some reason he can't fathom and probably doesn't want to. Live bait that thinks he's live bait. Live bait that he can hear breathing above the gasp and rasp of the walkers. Go! shouts his ma, her voice high and strangled. The same voice she used when his old ma was so drunk and so high that all he wanted was his belt, the thin one, with the buckle that tore strips of flesh with its bite. Daryl, please, Beth whispers. Please. He plays the beam of his torch against the walls, shining it into the corners, looking for the source of the breathing, looking for that thing that can still scamper and not shuffle, the life in this room of death. But he can't see it can't find it hidden in the blue and purple shadows, hidden beneath the guttural noise of the walkers, lying in wait beneath the stench. It's biding its time, holding out for a mistake, not letting itself be found. He finds something else, though. Something his dumbass torch manages to illuminate above the bed. Something that turns his blood to ice-cold sludge, that loosens his belly even as it punches him in the gut. Something he only sees for a second, that he barely has time to register. One word written in dried brown blood. A word he's become way too familiar with. A word he's grown to despise and fear and resent as it grapples with him. As it tries to pull him back down to the life he left behind. He barely has time to read it. Because something's flying towards him across the room. Something dirty and small and screaming and flailing. Something that's agitating the walkers as it streaks over the wooden floor on knees and elbows and a mass of filthy hair. Small and wild and shrieking. It's a wonder he manages to read it. A miracle, even as he's turning away, turning toward the new threat. But he does. He does read it. Between the hissing and the rasping and the screaming, between his ma's sobs and Beth's pleas and Merle's shouting, he does read it. He reads it, and he knows it. He lived it. He remembers it. And it's all he sees as the thing, the wraith, the live bait, leaps out of the darkness at him. Claimed.
Okay, so, <laughs> so, uh, I read this after I recorded everything else. So you're hearing this after I recorded the chapter of Safe Up Here With You and the intro and the outro of this episode. This is the last thing I'm recording. And what you need to know is that I did what I am doing with this fic now completely, which is that I am reading it as I read it. You are hearing me read it for the first time. I did not read this chapter before I read it to you. Holy shit. Okay, um, Mel, fuck you, first of all, and also fuck you. Um, because you know what? It's, it's, it's fun to read something aloud as it's freaking you fuck out. Cause I swear to God, by the end, I had real goosebumps. Like, okay, listen, it takes a lot to freak me out, right? I'm a horror writer. Now, granted, one of the reasons why I'm a horror writer is that I get freaked out by things. I, I place a lot of importance on being scared. It's something that I think is worth doing. It's something that I think is, is an emotion worth providing to people, and it's something I think is an emotion worth providing to yourself, a particular kind of fear that you do consensually. But it still does take kind of a lot to get to me. I have a fairly high tolerance. This freaked me out real bad. <laughs> so, uh, Mel, huge, huge, huge kudos uh, for for producing some real first-class horror here. Suspense and horror. And uh, I'm not going to look ahead until I'm ready to read the next chapter, but I'm kind of chewing all my fingers off at this point. Yeah, so <laughs> that was great. Uh, yeah, all right. So let's uh, let's move on to safe up here with you. God damn it, Mel. Safe up here with you, chapter four. Mine for gold and a heart of lead. She's back with him for the rest of the night. She doesn't talk much. Really, she doesn't talk at all. She sits on the mattress and then she sits on the sofa, and the whole time she's writing and doing so furiously. No pauses, no thinking of the right phrase or word. No time to consider what she's going to write next, because there is no thinking or consideration. Just her brain spinning its wheels. But it's something. He gets her some painkillers, gets some for himself. He doesn't know about her, but they do help him a little. He unpacks the pack. He takes inventory of the food he grabbed and mulls over the idea of actually storing it all somewhere, then decides that's stupid and just piles it on the counter. He makes a fire. When he does, the endless scratching sound of her pen falls silent, and he turns to see her staring at him, at the tongue of flame he's coaxed into being. Her face is impassive, but he doesn't think it's blankness. He doesn't think she's numb in there. Not right now. Looking at him and at the fire, her journal clutched in her hands, closing it, bringing it to her chest, hugging it like she suspects that he might make a grab for it. Outside, the gray sky is bleeding into a deeper gray dusk, and for the present, the fire is the only light. It tosses shadows across her face with wild abandon, cutting over her scars in the first hints of lines, 
making her look like a crone one second and a child the next. Somewhere in between the two is her, but he has no idea where to look. I'm not going to burn it, he says. Low, gentle. He doesn't know if that's what she's thinking. And in fact, she might not be thinking much of anything. Much of the time, he thinks she's probably a creature of instinct, jerked around by emotions and torn, gauzy memories instead of careful reasoning. Except for the part of her that maintains that she's dead. That part... He thinks that part has given itself an awful lot of insane thought. For a long moment, she just looks at him. Then, slowly, she releases the journal and lowers it into her lap, opens it, and goes back to writing her endless preschooler's signature. He goes back to the fire, builds it up, returns to the kitchen, and starts to make dinner. She stares down at the plate when he puts it in front of her, and he can tell it's conscious staring. It's staring with weight. She's looking at what he's given her, and she doesn't get it, and she's trying to do so. And he's trying not to hope, and as usual, he's failing miserably. Scoops of peanut butter, scoops of jelly, some crackers to smear it on if that's something she wants to do. He gave himself the same, and now, sitting beside her and looking at it in the firelight, in spite of the hope, he's not sure about it. Not sure he should have. And it's not about her, not because he's worried about her. She might be having a good patch after such a bad one, but he would still be surprised if this alone got much out of her. It's about looking down at the peanut butter and the jelly and thinking about how he knows they'll taste, and looking at her with her face and hair gone all fire gold and edged with red, and the way he felt himself looking at her then that night, and wanting to say something. No idea what the fuck it was, just looking at her and silently imploring her to understand because he could never say it at all. Wouldn't even know how to begin. Looking at her with grape jelly still piercingly sweet on his tongue, and her little smile slipping away from her mouth. He'll torture himself if it helps her. He'll do it every waking second. He gave her a spoon. Moving tentatively now, she uses it. Scoops up some peanut butter, scoops up some jelly, eats. He watches her, his own helpings untouched, and squeezes his hands into painful, biting fists. She just eats, mechanical as always. She still might not get it, but she no longer cares. She doesn't need to. What's on the plate in front of her is calories. She's refueling the machine that is her. He gave her a can of soda. She drinks it with the same mindless instinct to consume. He doesn't eat his doesn't drink his. He gets up and returns to the kitchen, tosses the plate in the sink with a sound like breaking, not checking to see if it broke or not and not giving a shit, grabs a can of chili and cuts it open, and eats it cold. He eats it leaning against the counter and staring across the cavernous room at the fire, at her silhouetted against it, head lifted as she gazes into its heart, and he isn't thinking about that, isn't thinking about anything. He'll see her blankness, and raise her his own. They're settling into a bedtime routine of a kind. Face, hands, teeth. There's no reason whatsoever for her to change into anything that could be considered pajamas, but he brought them anyway. Two of those loose t-shirts, two of those loose pairs of shorts, because that was what had been easiest to grab from a looted Walmart, only moderately full of walkers, because he wants her to feel human. Eating like refueling, staring dully at a fire, not talking for hours on end, 
not talking ever until she cracked and made him do so, collapsing into thin unconsciousness in the clothes they wore for days at a stretch, covered in so many layers of grime that it started feeling like a second skin. That wasn't human. She knew that. She knew it better than anyone. That was why she refused to settle. That was why she demanded more. So he gets her to wash, gets her to take care of her teeth, gets her to change out of the shirt and jeans she'd been wearing. She does all of this with only the barest prompting. She seems to understand what's expected of her now. She goes to her bed without any prompting at all, without a word, and she lies down and curls up facing him and closes her eyes, her face sliding into a smooth, nothing expression, different from her usual blankness. He can't tell if she's falling asleep or not, and he doesn't imagine it really matters. He sits down next to her, like before, and he watches her as her breathing slows, and the last light of a dying fire stains her skin bright crimson. After a few moments of silent stillness, he lifts a hand and lays it against the side of her head, combs his fingers through her hair. Her wounded hand is tucked against her chin, the tip of her thumb pressed against her bottom lip. Her hair needs brushing. It's shorter, but it can still tangle. Maybe she'll let him do that if she won't do it herself. He can get her a brush from the pharmacy, now that he has a better idea of what the situation is down there. He can go back, be more careful. And she should bathe. That might help, too. He doesn't know how likely it is that he'll have to push her into that, and he's not even remotely prepared to think about it. He never thought about her like a child. Not really. They never had that option. Even right after the farm, he didn't think about her that way. She was young, she was new to the shit the world had become, but he understands, probably better than most people, or at least it used to be so, that sometimes children stop being children far too early. Sometimes children never get to be children at all. They're walking around in the bodies of children, beaten and burned into old men and women, and set into a lifetime of it, regardless of how long that life turns out to be. Carl was a boy, Beth was a girl, but neither of them were children. She was never a child to him, but he looks at her now and that's all he sees. This is not how it was supposed to be. He gets up and goes to the pantry, to the wine rack, grabs a bottle of something without looking at what it is. The crumpled carton containing his last four cigarettes is by his bed. He grabs that too. The clouds are still heavy and low, so there's no moon, no stars, and a wind picking up like a storm is on the way, low rumbles so distant that they're nearly inaudible. He sits down against the railing, back to it, and pushes the cork down the neck of the bottle with the blade of his knife, and smokes, and gets slowly and determinedly drunk on what, when he examines it much later, turns out to be Shiraz from a place whose name looks French, and which he can't even hope to pronounce. Smoking. And wine. He doesn't laugh out loud, and he's not laughing on the inside, but he can look at his situation, and he can see the logic in the laughing he might be doing, and he can be morbidly glad that he didn't decide to do this in bed. And anyway, it's stupid. Getting drunk is stupid. Everything is stupid. They're not secure. They're not safe. Nothing here is safe. Everything is a threat. Walkers. Bad people. Her. Him. Safe is a fucking fantasy. So it doesn't matter. None of it does. When it starts to rain, he grips the top of the railing, hauls himself to his feet, and stumbles to bed.
When she bled, all the color bled away with her. Watching it flow out, every step more and more of it, pouring down the stairs around him like a waterfall, carried her through it. She was heavy, but he had to. Him, and he snarled at the people. God, he can't even remember who they were who tried to help him. Tried to take her, he thought. Take her away from him. No, his fault. He didn't grab her. Knew something was wrong and didn't grab her and pull her back from the edge. And he'll carry her now down flight after flight of stairs as his penance. And it won't ever be enough, because no suffering could be sufficient to balance this account. Out into a world painted in gray scale, there was screaming. They couldn't see for his tears. All that color, storm clouds ahead. It should have rained black blood. Looking down at her, head against his chest, dreaming this. Had been dreaming it since he lost her. Fuck, never could have told anyone. Holding her again. Not like this, though. He's not picky, not difficult to please. He just wanted her to be alive. But she is, and it's not dark. He's carrying her through a hall of light, a warm bundle in his arms, breath and pulse and blood beat. Here, with him. He was wrong. He was wrong about everything. Everything. Looking ahead at the dark gleam of polished wood, almost blinded. Every step is slow, even, timed with her heart. She's not heavy. This is so easy. This is so right. Finally, after all this time, he's getting it right. This should come in threes. That number is special, magical, talismanic. He carried her to the little white trash brunch he so carefully arranged for her, carried her out of the place that killed her, and now he carries her a third time, thrumming with life, and he carries her with very specific purpose. He knows what it is, or he will know. He'll see. Air caressing his skin, toying with her hair, fresh and cool. Sky sunless and white and brilliant. Trees all around them, the world spread out below. Mountains, graceful rounded peaks rolling into valleys, but no color, no color anywhere. All shades of gray, black shadows sweeping across the world, pale trees like furred finger bones. Everything before and beneath them looks like the humped backs of sleeping dogs. Wolves, resting now. They're safe. He's safe up here, with her, and when he looks down at her, she's dressed all in white like a bride, her face tipped up to his, and she's smiling that sweet little smile and reaching up to touch his mouth. She's there. She's her. All of her. All returned to him. He had faith. He never lost it. He never betrayed her. He never gave up. He never left her behind. He lifts her above the world, and he holds her close and looks at her. Her gray lips move. It's all right. It's better now. He stands at the edge, and opens his arms and watches her fall. Agony and screaming. The agony is his. The screaming isn't. He sits there, dazed, whirling his gaze around, his arm pounding with pain. The rain is drumming on the windows, still no moon and no light to speak of, but he can make out faint outlines, and he can see, across the displaced furniture and the wide expanse of wood floor black as tar, her, her little form writhing and twisting in the sheets, her head snapping back as another scream tears itself out of her throat. Words in that, somewhere. Something. 
A distantly removed part of himself processes that. The rest of him is moving, launching out of bed and flying across to her. Edward said sometimes she had nightmares, said they were bad, bad enough to really be more like night terrors, and that she would wake up and not be awake at all, still think they were going on, once fighting a girl who was assisting him so hard she sprained the girl's wrists. But Edwards never specified what the dreams were about. And Daryl didn't ask. Should have. Just another mistake. He has no idea if it would help now, but it sure as fuck wouldn't hurt. He slides onto his knees on the mattress next to her, grubs for her. Beth! Beth, it's all right! You're... She strikes at him, claws at him, digs her nails into his arm and hisses like an enraged cat, and he yelps at the bright hot flare of fresh pain and releases her and reels back before he can stop himself. For a fraction of a second, her eyes are open, her head and shoulders lifted off the bed, and though there shouldn't be enough light to see it, her eyes are blazing, literally blazing, full of fire. It can't be possible. But a lot of things aren't possible, and with perverse glee, they've gone ahead and happened anyway. It's just for that tiny sliver of time, but it feels like minutes, her seizing his gaze with hers and holding it, strangling it, and his breath freezes in his throat, his mouth hanging open, and his hands useless at his sides. Then she's back to spasming, her whole spine arched into a bow, and he wonders if she's actually having a seizure, not those little brain hiccups, but a real honest-to-God seizure, which he has no idea how to handle, when she's suddenly reaching for him, groping at his knees, curling toward him, and whimpering. And all he can do is reach back. She cringes away when he ignores the lingering burn in his damaged muscle, and tries to get his arms around her, and hisses again, fighting just as hard as she's clearly frightened but she's still scrabbling against his hands with her own hooked fingers, and he does the only thing he can think to do. He takes her hands in his, weaves their fingers together, and squeezes, holds on like he's trying to pull her out of high-rushing water, sucking mud, like he's caught her just as she's tumbling off a cliff, a cliff falling, oh my fucking god, and she squeezes back so hard she hurts him, their knuckles cracking together. As he drops onto his side and faces her, she's back to whimpering, tossing her head as if she's trying to evade something that isn't him, trying to keep herself clear, and there's a name lodged in those heartbreaking little sounds. She's saying it over and over, though he doesn't think it's the only word forcing its way free of her throat and her broken brain, and it takes him a moment or two to get it, but he does. He's almost certain. Gorman. He doesn't know when she quiets. He only knows that she does, and that's enough. He thinks it's possible that he actually falls asleep again for a short period. It's possible that he doesn't. Nothing feels real. It feels like he never stopped dreaming. He knows he was. He doesn't remember much about it other than that it was terrible, and he doesn't want to remember. Both of them, at once, going through that. He's smiling grimly on the inside. He watches her for a while, watches her breathing as it slows down and softens, watches the tension slide out of her muscles, the trembling subside. She's rolled onto her side, too, head near his, still gripping his hands. He has no desire whatsoever to let her go, even though the dressings on her bitten fingers have been half torn off and they should be replaced. At some point, at some point he'll do that. Right now it doesn't seem as though she's going to do any more damage to herself any more damage to him. His arm is still sobbing weakly, but he's barely aware of it. Beth, he whispers, and he's not sure why. 
but as soon as he does, her eyes open, and it's only then that he realizes the rain has eased and sunrise is approaching, and there's a hint of light bleeding into the sky. All gray. Yes. You're... He hadn't expected her to answer. He doesn't know what to do now. Not that he did before. You all right? She just looks at him. She doesn't appear to be blinking. Then, slowly, what do you think? Even less idea what to do than he had already. He swallows, hard. She's still holding on to him. As long as she's holding on to him, talking to him, aware of him and considering him real enough to interact with, things are actually pretty good. Or I hope so. Simple. He senses that simple is best here. Simple and true. He takes a breath and, almost imperceptibly, he shifts closer to her. The room is cool. The fire died down to coals a while ago, but her skin is still dully gleaming with sweat and damp strands of her hair are stuck to her temple and brow. I think you're here. He pauses and gives her hands a gentle, careful squeeze. I think you're safe. She laughs. It's only a breath, but it's unmistakable, and it's cold. Hard. You're an idiot. Yes. Yeah, I am. Closer. See? Idiot. But you are. It's safe up here. I swear it, Beth. I swear. Don't lie to me. Not so cold now, nor so hard. Instead, there's such a deep sadness, a heaviness in those four words that he almost can't stand it. Almost can't keep himself away. She sounds like that, and all he wants to do is hold her as tight as he can. Pull her into himself, hollow out his fucking ribcage to make a place for her. Keep her there. Keep away whatever is making her feel like that. When she cried before, he hated it, and he never knew what to do, and he would have done anything if it would have helped her stop. Then he made her cry, or he saw the tears in her eyes even if she didn't let them fall, and he hated himself more than he has ever hated anything. Then he didn't, for a little while. Ain't lying, but God, oh God, he is. He's lying to them both, and he's doing it with all the determination he can muster, and it's worse than a lie, because part of him, a significant part, the majority, believes that if he lies long enough and hard enough, he can make it into something true. You are. Still sad. But is that a smile? An awful, twisted smile. He can just see its edge in the gathering dawn. Do it. I changed my mind. Lie to me, Daryl. Lie all you want. Then it's her that closes the distance between them. Her that shifts roughly forward and into the spoon his body makes, tucking everything up close and pressing against his chest and fitting the top of her head under his chin. She's a little fetal ball, warm and shivering. Her hand curves over the side of his neck, and he thinks about her hooking that hand the way she did before, nails in his flesh and gouging deep, cutting into his artery and pumping his blood all over them both. And he would die, and he would turn, and he would take her. She's not safe, not in any sense in which that word could ever be used. You're safe. He whispers again, and he wraps her up in his arms. If she's going to do it, she'll find a way.
and we're back. God, I know every time I record one of these, I'm complaining about the neighbors across the street, uh, across the driveway. They've just been, they've been driving heavy machinery up and down like all day. I don't know if you can hear it, but yep, there they go. What the hell are they? Yeah, I don't know. They have like a car hauling business or something. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. I don't know exactly when the next episode of the podcast will be, but I'm going to be trying to get it up soon. Uh, If you have any ideas for anything that you would like to hear, anything you would like to hear me discuss, please let me know. Um, I'm going to be trying to do more conversations and interviews with people. Uh, I've been loving the stuff that I've been doing with Molly. I'm going to do that again soon, too, I hope. And I want to keep doing those, but I'm also interested in talking to other people. So if you have Skype, uh, if you want to have a conversation with me, if you'd like me to interview you, please let me know. Get in touch with me in any of the places that I mentioned in the intro. And we'll talk. We'll see if we can work something out. Uh, Again, just a reminder, if you want to contribute to my Patreon, it's hugely appreciated. Go to dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. It's linked at the top of the page. Click on it. Check out the rewards I'm offering. means a tremendous amount to me. Uh, If you don't feel comfortable with Patreon, you can also go to keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com. There's a little tip jar on the front page. takes you to PayPal. You can go ahead and toss a couple bucks in that, and that's also hugely appreciated. And again, just spreading the word, reblogging, letting other people who might be interested in the podcast know about it. That's awesome too. In some ways that actually means the most. Thank you again to all of the contributors on Patreon. Thank you so much to people who are just here listening to this. I enjoy doing this for me, but I also love doing it for you. So it means a lot to me to know that people are getting enjoyment out of this right now. All the time, but right now especially. I'm going to get out of here. And all of you out there, stay strong, stay safe. Whatever it is that you're trying to do, keep doing it. If you feel alone, please know that you're not alone. If you're having trouble taking care of yourself, please remember that that is so important. Again, right now, more than ever before. If you're taking medication, take your medication. Eat, get enough sleep, stay hydrated. All of the stuff that people say to do. And take some time to do stupid shit. Because that that's a recharger. Like, it really is. I complained on Twitter uh, the other day that I missed caring about stuff that didn't matter. And in some ways I think that, well, I mean, first of all, it's a mark of privilege to be able to care a lot about stuff that doesn't matter. But it's also important to care about stuff that doesn't matter to the extent that you can. Because it's escapism. And, and to the degree that it's healthy, it helps you care about the stuff that does matter, I think. So make time for stupid shit. When I'm done recording this, I'm gonna go kill space zombies. I've been playing through Dead Space 2, which is... I mean, it's sort of a shit-your-pants space horror game, but it's soothing for me in that respect, which I know doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but but it is. So I'm gonna go do that right now and turn off my brain for a while, and that'll be nice. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I will speak to you, hopefully, soon.